Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 142. We're recording on Thursday, January 28th of 2016. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky. We're coming to you from bookriot.com. I mean, the calendar says it's 2016. But our, our first story this week makes it feel like it's 2015 all over again. I see what you're doing there. Yeah, I, we thought last year was the year of finding random crap left over from the, you know, detritus of authors' lives and republishing it. But no, the, the beat goes on. And the, the next one is um, a new Beatrix Potter story about a cat with a double life. Uh, called The Tale of Kitty and Boots, and it features a well-behaved prime black kitty cat who leads rather a double life. Um, So basically what happened, uh, I'm not exactly sure where it popped up, um, but it was among some things that the publishing house, I think, had, or the publisher Mm -hmm. or someone related to the publishing house, found – the the kitty herself the kitty calls herself Miss Catherine Saint Quentin. This is like the most <laughs> Beatrix Potter thing ever. It really um, is. Oh she, yeah, it says um the publisher happened to read a reference to this story in an old biography of Beatrix Potter. Oh, and she and, went to the archive and Yeah, dug it she up. went to the Victoria and Albert Museum archive where Beatrix Potter's papers live and searched through them and then she found the notebooks that had the story and have one color illustration. Um, apparently it still needs some editing. Beatrix Potter admitted as much, but the full story is there. So I guess that's what we're going to get about a cat who goes out hunting in the guise of puss in boots, but ends up in a trap. And uh, Peter Rabbit, but older and fatter, <laughs> is there <laughs> all along with the characters uh, who made, with other characters that helped make Beatrix Potter famous. Peter, Peter Flabbit shows up at the end of the story. <laughs> that's a show title. <laughs> um I have to admit, if you were going to create a story that would get me less excited <laughs> than a Beatrix Potter story, I don't know that you could, yeah. that I would even, like, that would make the, that would be worth a mention in the show, that would sort of be interesting enough to the general population to be in the show, and yet so uninteresting to me personally, I think we found it right here. Yeah, right. this is, for me, this is under, well, that's a thing that's happening. There's a thing that's happening. And I, I know some people, um, our, our friend and, and co-writer writer at Book Riot, um, Rachel Cordasco, we're so sorry. I know you like Beatrix Potter, and I'm so happy for you. I wish I did. I wish this was a thing I could get excited about. Um, but I, I am not personally. But I know there's a lot of people out there and a, a lot of people that have kids that like Beatrix Potter. Um, and the Peter Rabbit stories, especially. It'll be so, a good nostalgia fix. Yeah, it'd be, you know, whatever. We'll see what it is. Um, I was trying to think what would I like to have found. I've been thinking about that too. Um, I think we maybe did this a little bit a with little. Ghost of a Watchman, I think. Um, you know, you know, the, the Holy Grail for me would be, I mean, it doesn't exist, so I know, but like 
if Ellison's second novel is like, oh, yeah, my editor, the editor was like, actually, you know what? I had it. I went into his house before mm-hmm. his house caught on fire and copied it out, except it wouldn't be done. It, it was a mess still and everything like that. But that, you know, an Ellison short story would be something up there for me. Um, I wouldn't mind a, you know, a missing Willa Cather novel oh, would be yes. pretty good for mm-hmm. me. Um, anything come to mind for you? Uh, like a Toni Morrison's diary that she's been secretly mm. planning to publish forever and just saying she's never going to write a memoir. My uh, life's not that interesting, Rebecca. A trove of James Salter. I, oh, now, ooh, now we're talking. Like, well, uh, yeah, I, I yeah. have to admit I'm still interested in this this rumored, not even rumored, I think almost announced J.D. Salinger, Magnum Opus, Glass Family stuff. I have to admit mm-hmm. I'm very interested in that. Yeah, that'll be interesting. Um, but just in terms of personally what I want, yeah, 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 uh, yeah. Of, of posthumous discoveries, probably at the top of the list is a trove of yeah. previously undiscovered James Salter. I want, there could, it's, not un, it's not inconceivable that there's like, you know, collected sh- – like, a few short stories that have yeah, never got or like placed. Travel or travel essays that oh, never yeah, got published right. or seems really like he maybe anything. Could have, he, could, he seems like he might have been a diary keeper. I bet he wrote a good I, letter. Don't you think Salter you know, wrote a I good letter? I think that he probably did. I'm, his The memoir that he did, the food memoir that he did with his wife called Life is Meals, mm-hmm. is all pulled from a journal that they kept, like, or like a series of journals that they kept in their kitchen for their whole life together, where they wrote down like recipes and stories from dinner parties, and they took it with them when they traveled and wrote about meals that they ate. So I suspect he journaled in other respects as well. I hope that he did. I would read the crap out of that. Um, yeah. Yes, yeah. I would. All we right. should move on to we our move first sponsor. sponsor. It's Audible. Audible's back. You know about listening to things in your ears, listeners, because you are doing that right now. And if you haven't tried or you haven't tried Audible, Audible is the leading supplier of audio programs from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, entertainers, magazine and newspaper publishers, and business information providers. Their app is free. On iPhones, iPad, Android, Windows Phone, you can download and listen on your Kindle Fire and over three, uh, excuse me, 500 MP3 players. Unlike a streaming or rental service with Audible, you own your books. So you can access them anytime, anywhere, right from your smartphone. So it's mostly a subscription-based service. You can buy one-off titles if you want. But you subscribe and you get a credit or a couple credits depending on what level you pick. But what, if you decide not to subscribe – those files are still for you to access um, for as long as, you know, Audible is around as a company. So you don't have to worry about losing, you know, access to something like that. Audible also has the great listen guarantee. If you decide you don't like the book you chose, no worries. Just exchange any book you aren't happy with for another title anytime. No questions asked. Just for listeners, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial membership. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash bookriot. Start your free trial today. Shows the support. You're coming from us. They'll book some more shows. We can make stupid jokes um, from here on out. Um, I did it, Rebecca. I finished the 40-hour Peter Drucker's magnum <laughs> oh, opus management. This uh, is the recommendation the no one wants. <laughs> well, I tell you what. Uh, 40 hours. It was a slog. It was long. Um, it was super interesting. I'm definitely glad I, I did it. Probably I could have gone for the 17-hour abridged version, to be honest. I could have gone that route. But I, I have to say I'm constitutionally opposed to abridged versions of things. So I get major FOMO from uh, abridged versions. Yeah, I don't know. If it, I don't know. I, I wouldn't call it FOMO necessarily. I just uh, something about it. I, I don't particularly like. I've never really, really explored it deeply. I'll have to talk to my therapist about it. But anyway, it was super interesting. I mean, Drucker. 
you know, he was he wrote this at when he was ninety. He had spent fifty years studying management. Um, he grew up in Austria in the thirties. Came over to the America America in the late thirties. Before you know, as the tide of Nazi Germany was sweeping through, like so, a lot of his own personal stories are interesting. Like he knew, you know, Henry Ford Jr. You know, when he came mm-hmm. over to, to rescue Ford from the Ford company, he knew Alfred Sloan, who took over for GM. So he knows a lot of these people. No one knew more about the restructuring of American business and world business and the model of American business throughout the second half of the 20th century. It's interesting, I think, as a history book in a way, um, as it is a, uh, you know, sort of a tool for understanding how management and business can work. Talks a lot about knowledge workers. Some of the stuff from his set, this his 70s. When he was starting to talk about knowledge workers taking over for manufacturing, very prescient, um, amazingly so. Uh, I thought it was super interesting. No one listening to this is, is going to um, go read it. But I will say this. I would never in a million years have finished it in print. I just wouldn't have. I, you know, it was one of those things where I could listen to it in 20, 30-minute snatches when I'm in the car or, you know, doing something else. Um, and it made it easy to pick up. Whereas when at the end of the day and I pick up a print book, I'm looking for something else anymore in my life when it's 9 and 30 and my day is sort of over. Um, right now I'm reading Agatha Christie Mysteries like one after another. And so management by Peter Drucker would just not get picked up. But having available an audio all the time on my phone – with me certainly helped me get through. It took me about a month to get through. So anyway, that's that's my audible that's my audible testimony. Oh, funny! Yeah, I finished uh, "Down the Rabbit Hole" by Holly Madison, mm. um, former Playboy bunny and actress and reality TV star and a bunch of other things. It was gossipy and delicious and exactly what I wanted to listen to for you know infernal hours on cardio machines at the gym. Um, and I have just started "The Year of Yes" by Shonda Rhimes. Mm. Um, so that's continuing. someday I'll make like a master list of the like motivational lady power books, um, but Shonda Rhimes. This is a memoir and a sort of motivational self-help inspiring you to say yes to challenging new opportunities. Um, and I like that attitude. So, so far, I'm I'm digging it. We've heard great things about it from a bunch of other people. And I can't really imagine a few people more positioned to talk about um, the challenges of being, you know, sort of unique in your industry and taking on new things and saying yes, even when you're terrified than than Shonda Rhimes is, especially as a a black woman running multiple television shows. Uh, That's a really unique experience. And she's just fascinating and so smart. So I'm early, I'm early days, early hours in my audiobook listen of that, but it's great so far. Cool. All right. The big story this week, um, I think the big story in the world of books and uh, not not incidentally, you know, kind of the story we'd lead a show with ourselves, Mm -hmm. Um, Lee and Lowe, uh, released the results of its diversity baseline survey. We talked about, I believe, on the show when they were oh, soliciting yeah, several times um, soliciting information from publishers and a couple of review journals. I guess are in here too. Eight eight review journals and thirty four publishers submitted basically their diversity information about their workforces. Um, and I guess notable, uh, we should give shout. I mean, we'll link to the show notes. You can see here, but just in terms of. The first question is going to be asked, is this a representative sample? Um, I don't know enough about the sort of aggregate number of publishers, but I'll tell you this. Uh, Macmillan participated, Hachette participated, and the, 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 the White Whale, PRH, Penguin Random House, um, participated. So three of the big five participated. So that's pretty good. Mm-hmm. Also also notable um, big publishers that aren't part of the big five, but Scholastic was there. Workman, Workman is there. Bloomsbury's there. Candlewick. Candlewick. Chronicle. Chronicle. Um, 
let's see, any uh, names other people would know, Learner Publishing, um, Abrams, um, yeah, and then then a bunch of other presses mm-hmm. too, and I it, I just don't want to go read the list, but yeah, there's a big list. Be 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 more. Um, it's uh, so okay. Yeah, the so the representative question is interesting, and we won't have an answer to. No, it, we, I don't think we can know unless every publisher. Gets yeah, on board. and it's the biggest um, survey of its kind so far. It's several times bigger than um, the sample that Publishers Weekly had when they did a survey that we discussed last year about salary and compensation in publishing and included some diversity questions as well. So the survey was sent to um, 1,524 reviewer employees and almost 12,000 publishing employees. So about 13,000 surveys were deployed and 25.8% of the people responded. So they got about 3,300 mm-hmm. responses, um, which is a really good, like that's a big juicy sample, mm-hmm. um, whether it's representative or not, who knows, but that's a, a big enough group to draw some interesting conclusions. Right. It, it's hard to imagine that if, um, say, every other publisher that didn't participate, or even the rest of the big five, I guess we should call them out too, maybe, mm-hmm. uh, SNS um, yeah. isn't Harper. there, and Harper were the other two. Um, Which I, is I, I interesting, given how forward-thinking HarperCollins seems to I don't be know. about yeah. everything else. I don't know. Um, anyway, and uh, the, I don't the, think the, those that would make much of a difference, to be honest. I, yeah, I think it would are, largely be a bigger similar. sample set with the same results. Yeah, the um, publishers, my understanding is that the publishers, like someone at the top of the publisher distributed the link or the survey to all of the employees and then employees could opt in. So there might be something notably different or statistically significantly mm-hmm. different about the people who chose to participate in the survey than about the overall group that would prevent it from being representative. But again, open questions. And yeah. this data is interesting, but in the like, it's t- totally unsurprising. Totally way. unsurprising. You know, and um, I guess the top level story for, I mean, we tend to follow race and gender on the show more carefully. And this this one also included or, sexual orientation uh, and disability. So that's interesting for us to think about as well and talk about a little here. So the, the top mm-hmm. line results here, we go, then we can talk about them. Um, in terms of race, 79% uh, of the workforces of the respondents were um, white or Caucasian. I don't know why the slash, we do this stuff anymore. Um, and then gender, 78% women, women or cis women, um, and then 88% straight or heterosexual, and then 92% non-disabled. Is the t- those are the top line results. There's an executive level we'll get to maybe in a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, but what do you, worse than you thought, better than you thought, what jumps out to you of just those sort of four right off the top and we can get into it? You know, the, um, the race number is interesting because I think if I'm recalling the Publishers Weekly survey correctly, it reported that publishing was 89% white, yeah. mm-hmm. and the respondents of this survey are 79% white. That's still way more white than the country is. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, unsurprising given what we know about how non-diverse books are, and mm-hmm. you can draw all of these connections between, well, publishing is now is run by mostly white people, and they're comfortable with mostly white things and they have all these ideas and even uh, and many unconscious biases that result in books being geared mostly by and for and about white people. Um, so that that's interesting. I don't know if I don't know. I don't have any way to guess which number is more 
accurate. Um, there was a lot of coverage for this survey and a lot of work um, by We Need Diverse Books to support Lee and Lowe's effort. And so it's possible that this reached more people of color in publishing who had the opportunity to fill it out than the Publishers Weekly survey did. We don't really know much about what the methodology of that mm-hmm. other one was. Either way, you know, very white. Um, the how woman dominated the industry mm-hmm. is is very interesting. Um, all the way down these pie charts, but um, that seventy eight percent of the respondents for this in the industry overall um, were women is really interesting. And I'm surprised by how straight um, mm. the respondents were. It like this is completely anecdotal, but it seems that in my experience, I feel that I you know meet and talk to a lot of queer people in publishing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, I just wonder where they either, either my experiences are not representative, which is possible. Um, or where were they when the surveys were, yeah. were distributed? So that's, that's very interesting to me. I would have guessed that it was probably closer to like, well, right now we're looking at 88% straight um, in publishing. I would have guessed that it was probably closer to like the 75, 80% range. Mm-hmm. Um, what about you? Uh, I guess, um, I'm not sure. I mean, the one that jumps out just in terms of being disproportionate is really the women to men, you know, mm-hmm. if you're just looking at straight demographics, um, which is, I guess it's not surprising, but, uh, you know, it, it's, you know, that that's weird, you know, weirdly, if you're coming and talk to about the overrepresentation in publishing or underrepresentation, that's the one that's most mm-hmm. out of whack, um, for better or worse. Um, the I guess the one that relates to what we talked about, that 79% white, I mean, I guess it's not where we want it to be. But on the other hand, it's also not as bad as you might think. Well, it's better than that 89%. It's certainly better. Than, and maybe year. that's where I'm judging it off of. Um, I, I think that's the thing. Because the, the other thing is, what are we going – I guess that's what I'm coming back to a little bit here is – what 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 pie chart would we feel good about? Does that make sense? Like yeah, and I and you know there's I think there can be a lot of disagreement about this. Um, for my sense, I think I would feel okay. Not that we, it wouldn't require vigilance. That basically it represented the American population. Again, this is I think these are all American publishers. We talk in this show mostly about America. I think you could make a reasonable case that you'd like to see. American cultural work more represent world kind of stuff. I think that's difficult for a lot of reasons, just in terms of workforce. I think in the fullness of time, maybe that's something to reach for. But, you know, I I think a reasonable goal, uh, at least in the intermediate term for companies, ours included, I would say, Mm -hmm. is to be, you know, something like what Americans out there walking around look like. Um, So then that brings up to the question, what percentage of Americans are white. Um, and, you know, it, it kind of it kind of varies a little bit by, you know, what study you look at. Um, but, you know, in the fullness of time, it's going to be less than half, um, you know, in the next 30 or 40 years. And already less than half of uh, kids starting kindergarten yeah. are white. So, um, you know, depending on what estimate you see that, you know, about 66 to 70% of Americans are white. Um, and that doesn't include sort of people who ally with, you know, uh, self-identify as more than one race, right? So, so that, 
that makes that 79% seem not quite as striking, right? I think Mm -hmm. that's just something that I'm trying to keep in mind as I look at it, not to say it couldn't be better or worse. Now, if you drill down into that, then you look at the the if you look at the the, the slices, four percent black or African American, well that's about a third of the of the population of what the you know the, that should be if you're mm-hmm. going by you know black people are about twelve to fifteen percent of the American population, and I haven't looked at a recent um, census or I haven't looked at the census recently. I did mm-hmm. re- I have recently looked at it because I wanted to know these numbers. So that's one. I think. I think especially when we we're talking about um, racial diversity issues that revolve around Black people, I think that's the one that has the farthest to go um, is Black people in publishing, and uh, uh, and that's true of our own company as well. I should say mm-hmm. um, one that's overrepresented, just in you know Asian Native Amer- Native Hawaiian or Pacific Islander. That's about seven percent of publishing, and it's about three percent of the American um, population. So that's, you know, interesting to see as yeah, well. Yeah, that is interesting. Um, Hispanic, Latino, Mexican is 6%. That's also, I believe, quite a bit under. I can't yes, remember. Yes, that's the, very low. Um, I think that's uh, Hispanic, Latino, Mexican are closer to 10 or 12% right now. But I could be – that could even be low in my my memory of it. So that's so that's one to go. So it might, it, it, it might just be you take 10% of those white Caucasian – and make them black people, and I think you'd have something getting close to what you know the American uh, demographic looks like. Yeah, I think the pie charts that I would be excited to see would be if you overlaid pie charts of, like you're saying, the U.S. population, and th- there wasn't much difference mm-hmm. um, between what's happening in the industry and what the general population of adults in the country looks like. Um, that's the goal that. I keep in mind, I think that we keep in mind when we're looking for contributors for Book Riot, it's a goal that we have work to do for with our own staff, as you said, but that seems to me to be a reasonable guideline to shoot for. Um, the uh, Where the gender stuff gets interesting to me is that um, at the executive level, like overall in publishing, the, these results showed 78% of people working in publishing uh, were women, but at the executive level, mm-hmm. it's 59%. So women are are more likely than men to work in publishing, but they are, uh, of all the p- spots in publishing, they are least likely to end up at yeah. the executive level. Um, according to this survey, they're more likely than men to be executives. Um, that's really, int- that was surprising mm-hmm. to me. Um, because but as a percentage is... of the whole workforce. Yes. So if you're a man in publishing already, you're more likely to be an executive than a woman. <laughs> yes. Um, which is interesting. Um, it is. And it's, you know, if you walk around BEA, you see a bajillion women for every man that you see. Like, you can see that very, it's very easy to notice when you're at big publishing events that most of the people in the room are women. But um, in conversations that I've had, in meetings that I've sat in, um, it does seem that fewer of the executives are women. And women talk about getting stuck sort of in the, hitting the glass ceiling of publishing and only being able to rise to a certain level. But feeling still that publishing is dominated by male executives. And so I'm really curious about this 
59% of publishing executives being women result of this survey. Um, if that's true, then the experience hasn't translated yet to the way yet, that women, yeah. yeah, to the way that women feel about working in publishing and to what it is like um, to be a woman trying to become an executive or a woman living as an executive. They don't, if women do have the majority on the executive seats, they don't feel like they do mm -hmm. yet. Yeah. Um, and it's also possible then that this group isn't representative and that men do hold more executive positions. Um, I think that's maybe a place where it, some of the other big publishers, if they had had survey participants as well, that could have created an effect. Um, but I was really surprised by that. Like, I was expecting to scroll down and see the pie chart flip, basically, from 78% mm -hmm. industry overall, and then to see that, like, you know, the vast majority of the executives were male. So that was that was a surprising result to um, me. I'm, I just did, I did my fact-checking about the percentage of um, Americans that are Latino. Mm -hmm. uh, the most recent data I see that I trust says about 16 or 17%. Oh, yeah. So that's way down. I mean, that's mm -hmm. way below what we'd like to see here. Right, that's and, what, 6% um, in the survey? Yeah, so another that's another one where black and African, African-American people and his, uh, Latino, Latino people really need to double, triple their their representation in publishing to get to, you know, something that looks like um, what you might see if you walked mm -hmm. the streets of America for, you know, and, and saw the people that are actually out there. Um, sexual orientation, 88%, um, straighter or heterosexual, 7% um, lesbian, gay, 4% bisexual, and 1% asexual. That, from what I can tell, from looking around again, these numbers are even harder than the race and gender demographics because mm – -hmm. People, you know, it doesn't get put on the census and other things, but that looks to be about in line uh, with the American population, um, as far as I can tell. And then disability, 92% non-disabled, um, about 9.5% um, of Americans um, reported having a severe disability last year. So that also looks to be about in line um, with, you know, the general population. Mm -hmm. It is interesting to go from the industry overall to the executive because mm -hmm. everything gets less representative. Yes. Every single, every single one. Um, women, there's still more women executives, but as a ratio of, of all people in the industry, it shrinks considerably. 86% of executives are white or Caucasian. 89% are straight or uh, heterosexual. 96 non-disabled. One quick thing is, and I need to dive in, I'm not sure if they give you the raw data here, but the, the top line chart of industry overall, 79% white, but then executives are 86% white, editorial is 82%, sales is 83%, marketing is 77%, and book reviewers are 89%. So how is it 79% in aggregate? That's something I question. don't understand. I wonder if what we don't see here, I guess, is support staff. Like, does that get... Um, I mean, I, I just am wondering, like, how how was the overall publishing industry seventy nine percent white when mm -hmm. executive editorial and, and sales are several you know more than five percentage points over that and the only one under it is marketing by two percentage points I don't quite I don't quite understand that um, could it, is marketing and sales just so much more of the workforce that that two percent difference countermands everything else I don't know yeah. but that's something that jumps out to me um, so yeah I think. I think what I'd be curious to see this in five to ten years. Mm -hmm. um, my suspicion is is that the the women who are lower in the the sort of ladder move up. That it's the executive level is going to start to look more like the gender overall. Um, but I don't know how long it's going to take to get there. Um, I think that racial piece is going to be 
intransigent for a while. That's going to be a hard needle to move because mm-hmm. um, it's a pipeline situation. Like the women are in the pipeline, especially yeah, white we, women, I should say, mm-hmm. are in the pipeline. They're they're working there. Um, but from what we can tell here, they're just there aren't the black and African American and Latino. You know, the size of the, the, the people already working in publishing to move up the ladder. And so, you, you know, you got to start, you know, back at the very beginning, which is a very nice place to start, you know, of like <laughs> internships and education and scholarships and awareness and visibility of publishing as a career right. path and making people feel welcome. And it's like an industry that they can be a part and of it, and the whole it, sort of shooting match. Yeah, it really requires that the people at the executive level start making some decisions about what the how, what the doorway looks like mm-hmm. at the entry level um, and we talked i think it was last week we talked about talked about penguin random house uk eliminating the um, college degree re- requirement for job applicants because they can find no correlation between it um, i would like to see publishing go in that direction as well um, i would also really love to see publishing just eliminate the unpaid internship um, yep. because that's a, a primary way that people get into publishing is taking unpaid internships and the only way that you can exist primarily in New York for these unpaid internships is if you have a family or a trust fund or some sort of bank account that can support you while you work 40 hours a week and don't get paid for it. Mm -hmm. Um, And the people in our country who are most likely to be in that position are white people. Um, So you like already there's a huge gate um, for that entry level publishing job. Um, If you want to be an editor, starting as an unpaid intern is basically the only way to move up that ladder Mm -hmm. um, to get in on the ground floor and work your way up. Um, Publicists often start that way. Um, Marketing, it's a little more common to be able to come into publishing from outside publishing when you have previous job experience. But anything that touches editorial, they want people who have been working with books like from college on or for their entire careers. Um, So that that has to change. The shape of the doorway um, at the entry level has to change so that you don't need to already be affluent um, to get those first opportunities. Yeah. I mean, it looks to me like if you are a publisher and you really want to hone in on one thing you could do, it seems to me hiring black editors wouldn't be the worst way to go. Only 2% of editors are black, according Mm -hmm. to this. 4%, you know, or or, together, more Hispanic and black um, editors. Just that's 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 something to you know that's one easy way. It's like we just want more. Yeah. Um, don't think about a goal right now necessarily. Don't think how long it's going to take us to get to the promised land where no one's going to bother us or we're going to feel happy or whatever your motivation is for doing it if you want to do it. But just hire more um, and figure out how you have to go about doing that. Uh, it's not easy to change hiring practices and it's not easy to change. I mean, publishing is a mature industry which means it's, you know, the pipelines are in place. It's very, we know um, both from inside and outside working with publishing and also observing from the outside as a mature industry, it's even more difficult to change. There are big bureaucracies. They have huge sales and publicity staffs, distribution networks. Like it is hard and complicated to get books out into the world. Um, And it's something that publishers have been doing for in America for 80 years and longer. Um, so it's it's not a really flexible kind of industry. So it's going to take a concerted effort and people to make different kinds of decisions consciously and mindfully to, to change that if they want to. And if they don't want to, that tells us something else. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So that that's it. Uh, anything else yeah. you want to talk to here? I mean, you know, I think it's worth – if you like this show and you've been interested in these discussions, I think it is worth uh, – there'll be a link in the show notes. I think it's worth looking at and diving into a little bit and see what, yeah. what's going on. I, I think, you know, as we've said, these are not surprising numbers. Um, I saw people say that they were disappointed by these numbers. Um, that's not my – I mean, I'm disappointed that our reality is not the yeah. reality that I want, but I don't find the results of the survey to be disappointing. It actually confirms yeah. and explains quite a lot um, that if you've been looking – at, like the the survey that we've talked about earlier in the year that the I think it's the Children's Book Council does every mm-hmm. year about the number of books for children that are by and about people of color and how abysmally low that is. Well, look at the workforce. And now we have some numbers about the workforce that go a long way toward explaining how you end up in a situation where only like 3% of children's books um, are by or about people yeah, of color. Yeah, I was thinking, um, oh, go ahead. Finish yeah, you, just, you can see how straight and white um, publishing's workforce is and how unless you're really working to get outside your own experiences and mindset you're with with the set of unconscious biases that people have you might be most likely to talk to white agents who represent white authors who write the kinds of stories that white readers buy and that cycle just runs on so it's not I, I didn't find anything to be really disappointed by in terms of the survey results it explains a whole lot about how we got where we are yeah it, uh... I guess, and, and and so I'd like to see someone write about this that's not me, or, you know, I haven't written about it, but like, it is straight and white, but America is straight and white. Um, it's a question of whether or not we're not, you know, publishing isn't straight and white in proportion to, you know, because, you know, depending on the, again, about sexual orientation, it's very difficult to say, but like, four to eight percent of Americans identify as gay or bi. Um, so publishing is straight, but is it more straight than it? we want it to be or that feels representative to be because that's, you know, um, is it representative? And I think that's what we're looking for mm-hmm. now. May, now, maybe not because that's one thing that's there's this Gallup poll. I'll try to dig it up um, that I saw last year that Americans actually think there are much there are more people identifying as gay in America than there are by like a factor of three or four, um, which is interesting. And I, I don't want to I don't think it would be bad if there were more gay people in publishing than there are in America. I don't think that's a problem at all. But what what could be reasonable goals um, is interesting to think about. Now, I, you know, it's interesting that there's so many white women in publishing. It makes me wonder, you know, I think Vita's done a hell of a great job. Um, but it is interesting that there's no equivalent organization for people of color, for example. I mean, they've, they've worked in women of color as sort of a secondary part of what they do. But it is a secondary part of what they do. Maybe in the future they'll change that. But there is no organization. There's no nonprofit as far as I know. And if, if, if there is, I'd sort of like to, someone out there to tell me that a nonprofit group, that the, their goal is to make publishing um, more representative. Um, I know We Need Diverse Brooks is about the book, you know, sort of the product. But I don't know as far as it's right now is like, is it a systemic sort of thing where they're counting and doing this other sort of thing? Maybe I'm yeah. wrong about that. I just um, haven't seen the work that they're doing. I think you're like a little, you're partially wrong yeah. about that in that we need diverse books is working to set up grants and um, internship endowments and that sort of thing for people of color to be able to take these unpaid internships yeah. in publishing and be able to get their feet in the door um, at the entry level of publishing. So they are thinking about changing the system. Um, 
but I think they they have a way to go before that before the organization's mission yeah. is mature and clearly stated and has an actionable plan. From, right, because they have I've awards seen. and grants, um, internships. I, maybe it's just in the early stages, and that over time they're going to grow into. Um, mm-hmm. A force to be reckoned with. I I think it would wouldn't be something out of out of hand for the publishing industry itself to fund some sort of third party nonprofit. Um, you know that's that's that would be a really excellent use of a bunch of publishers' dollars. Yeah. Um, or to get behind, we need diverse books in a serious way, in a structural way. Um, you know, it's because it kind of feels right now that we need diverse books in Vita. Um, and some of the other organizations working on this are kind of storming the gates rather than, you know, the the king and queen sort of saying, yeah, there's something for us to work on here. That's how it feels like to me still. Now, we don't hear a lot of direct communication from publishing about, yeah, we think this is a problem. Yeah, this is, you know, whatever. Um, And I can understand why, but we just don't hear that. It would be nice to see some consistent and thoroughgoing outreach on the part of publishing um, to sort of say, we want to do better than this. It's good for industry. It's fair. It's just the right thing to do all the way around um, rather than have sort of, I don't know, outside well, yeah. people feel like they're sort of working adversarially. And maybe that's how it has to right. start. I'm well, not sure. Yeah, I think they go hand in hand. Somebody has to rattle the mm-hmm. gates and get the attention of the king and queen. But then the king and queen do – ultimately it falls to the king and queen to decide that they're going to change – what things look like on the inside. So I think, you know, Vita and We Need Diverse Books have called attention to glaring problems. Yeah. Um, and with Vita, we've seen some organizations, some editors at big publications change their strategies to respond to the attention that has we, been But we've never heard from a pointed. CEO, have we? Or a CEO? I mean, no, but we've heard from, well, from with Vita, we've heard from editors of big publications um, who have changed strategies. Sure, and right, they, a public, right. Of, of, of right. Uh, media publication. Yeah, yeah, of like media. And so like for, uh, I would Tin like to House see. and some and, of those people, yeah. Right. And so the gender work is a little farther along than the Boy, it seems a lot diversity. further along. Yeah. yeah, okay, yes, is farther along. But that that did seem to happen relatively quickly with Vita mm-hmm. and editors responding to it. And I, we're just earlier in the cycle with the push for inclusivity in publishing. Yeah. But like the gates are definitely being rattled, and I'm certain that people at the CEO level are hearing about it. Um, how serious they think the concern is, how glaring they think the problem is, is something that I don't know. Um, but I agree, I would love to see a CEO make a statement about, you know, what this publishing house cares about this and recognizes that this is a problem. And here is our plan to bring more diverse people into our workforce. And these are all the reasons we think it's good because it's the right thing. We also recognize it's a good, it, this is good for business. Um, and you can make a very strong business case for it. I would love to see that kind of statement. Um, maybe in the next year or two, we'll get one maybe in response to these survey results. This is the kind of spotlight to shine on a thing like what Vita shines onto yeah. uh, gender in, in uh, And what reviewing. a job by Lee and Lowe. I mean, what yeah, an unbelievable job. job. I mean, they are a publisher. So I we do. I, I was, of course, um, being not completely representative because they're a publisher. So they, you know, they they are, if they're not the king and queen, they're certainly on one side of the, the gate when it comes to publishing. And they took the lead on this particular. I mean, it is interesting, too, that you go all the way down to the book reviewers part. And mm-hmm. it looks more problematic than any of the other pie charts. It does. And 89% and white, uh, 91% straight, uh, 87% women. I guess it's even more female-centric, which is countermands a lot. We've seen for Vita. I have that find that circle very hard to square 
mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't know, it must be different things, different publications or what they're looking at, but um, 89% white people on the, the review side, um, yeah. it's really, uh, really it's very shocking. Striking. I mean, that's the one that's, <laughs> I guess if I had to point to anything as being surprising, that difference when you go from the publishing industry's workforce as 77 or 79 percent white to the reviewers being 89 percent white. Now, that's the one I don't understand. I don't have a, the good reason for that because it would seem like that w- book reviewers would be, I don't know, many of them work part time, they're doing other things. Like, you wouldn't think it would be so structural. Right. Like maybe maybe my mm-hmm. my understanding of that well, is different. Like, yeah, we also we don't know if that number is representative. It's only eight it, publications. I, you should. Yeah. Say that too. If it is that that 89 percent, even if the 89 percent is high, I believe that book reviewing is very white. Yeah. Oh, sure. Um, I'm not at just least, proving it. Yeah. At least as white as publishing yeah. is. Um, it segues into another story that we just wanted to touch on a thing that was that is happening, uh, particularly in romance this week over at Kirkus Reviews. Bobby Dumas is one of the reviewers there and she reviews romance and runs a site called Read a Romance, uh, where she has decided to dive into diversity and has re- has invited 31 authors that re- represent a spectrum um, of, you know, diverse experiences to participate in it. She acknowledges that in 2015, she read, she did a um, themed reader romance month and had a number of diverse authors um, during August, but that was 11 out of 93. And she acknowledges that that's 8% and that's not nearly Mm. enough. Um, There's a long post here where she... Uh, Bobby Dumas is attempting, the intention is to talk about diversity and about the challenges of reading diversely, particularly um, in romance or publishing um, diverse romances, um, but sort of skews off into her reasons for not reading more diverse books or what's personally challenging to her about finding them. And there's some really... um, interesting and I, I think telling uh, statements in the piece. It's very long and so we won't like get into really summarizing it here, but th- it's a good intentions and then unwitting mm. bad execution story. Um, and Courtney Milan, who is a, a romance writer who's very active online, she's wonderful, I've read her books, I really like her as a person, um, wrote a very long comment addressing some of the problems that she saw in Bobby Dumas' approach to this diversity business and raising some very good questions. Um, it's a very well thought out comment. So we'll put a link in the show notes to the story. You can read Bobby Dumas' column and then you can read Courtney. Uh, long and thoughtful comment about it. And then there is a response that Bobby Dumas wrote as well, um, which this is sort of bubbled up into like, this yeah. is the tempest in the teapot. We're a of little bit out of our depth here in Romance Landia, right. but I think <laughs> right. for some of those of you that are interested in romance, especially, and, you know, um, with our, you know, us and others interested in yeah. diversity, this is the, one that you should take a look yeah, at. Yeah, the particular details of it. Um, are, I think, less important than the overarching thing that's happening, which is a a white reviewer in a position of power. She writes for Kirkus. Um, She also, I believe, writes for Publishers Weekly and is soon to... Oh, she writes for NPR. So she writes for Kirkus, she writes for NPR, and she is very soon to also write for the New York Times. Um, This is just one example of things like this happening, but uh, it appears that she has not taken the feedback very well, um, and it's, it's turned into one of those situations where critic people who are criticizing the approach and trying to offer feedback are being called mean, and the conversation is being shut down. Um, 
And there's a, a, it points to what I think is an important and interesting problem that publishing has, but I'm sure exists in other industries as well, where there's danger in calling out these problems when Mm. you see them. Um, And one of the conversations that's been going on in romance land and in a broader sense, sort of in bookish Twitter this week is that if you're a person of color and you're writing today, and in, in this case, if you're a person of color writing in romance, you're already doing heavy lifting of trying to teach the industry and t- trying to teach reviewers how to approach and talk about books that are not written by white people in a way that is interesting and respectful and accurate that, you know, it's less useful to talk about this as a diverse book than it is just to talk about it as a book. Um, And writers of color are doing that work all the time. Um, When a reviewer um, or someone at a publication makes a statement about diversity and then writers of color step in to try to offer feedback and that feedback is not received well, um, they run the risk then of burning bridges with someone Mm -hmm. who holds a lot of power in this case. um, And I don't, I, I don't mean to put Bobby Dumas like on blast mm-hmm. <laughs> for this, but it's an interesting situ. It's an interesting example of the risk that a writer of color then takes. Um, if uh, of having to even think about if I offer this feedback, will my next book not get reviewed in Kirkus NPR or the New York Times? Um, what a risk it is for writers of color to you know to step in and make this argument, and then that squares to the responsibility that um, if you think of yourself as an ally or you want to be an ally to writers of color um, and to people of color in publishing, the responsibility that white people have to step in and and do Mm -hmm. that work, do some of it because the risk is less. Um, So just an interesting thing to take a look at. A um, a, a fascinating detailed skirmish in the larger struggle, I think, is kind of what's yeah. going on there. I, I want to back up to We Need Diverse Books. I was just looking at the mission statement because the other thing I, I thought as I was talking about We Need Diverse but didn't say is that it's focused on children's books. Um, mm. So, you know, and what really what I'm envisioning is something that's sort of an industry-wide on all fronts. But We, uh, we Need Diverse Books is a grassroots organization of children's book lovers and advocates uh, that advocates essential changes in the publishing industry to produce and promote literature that reflects and honors the lives of all young people. Admirable goal. Um, I think I think if you just took out children's book lovers um, of all young people, maybe that's the kind of work. And maybe mm-hmm. in the fullness of time, that's what we need. It, it certainly started as a YA slash children's books initiative, still like that. But, you know, the problem we're looking at is not just for kids. It's for adults, too. Um so anyway, I just wanted to be clear about what I was trying to say, and it came out rather yeah. inelegantly there. All right, uh, we better gotta move on to our next do sponsor. Our next sponsor, yeah, okay. Uh, Fever Born by Karen Marie Moning is back this week. It is the new book in her epic Fever series. Karen Marie Moning is the number one New York Times bestselling author of the Fever series. And in this new entry, uh, it may be winter, but things are heating up. I think this is my favorite tagline I've ever gotten to read (laughs) on the show. Um, The characters Mac, Barons, Ryden, and Jada are back. The stakes have never been higher or the chemistry hotter. This story hurdles us into a realm of labyrinthine, intrigue, and consummate seduction. Feverborn is a tale of ancient evil, lust, betrayal, forgiveness, and the redemptive power of love. It's set in Dublin, which was once a normal city that had a touch of ancient magic, but is now treacherously magical, with only a touch of the normal. And on the war-torn streets of treacherously magical Dublin, Mac comes face-to-face with her most savage enemy yet 
herself. Uh, number one New York Times bestselling author Sylvia Day says, no one does it better than Karen Marie Moaning. You can read Feverborn now. It is available wherever books are sold or go to feverbornbook.com to learn more. Thanks again to Feverborn for sponsoring this week. Okay, let's let's do a little. Where do you want to go? Let's do a little tech stuff here. Um, one one of the long uh, criticisms of ebooks, and I don't know. I feel like this is a criticism that people who just sort of don't like ebooks kind of can drudge up. But I don't mm. think it's someone who you know people who like actually like ebooks really. I don't know. Feel if you feel differently. Once we've gone through the story, can let mm-hmm. me know. Is that you can't give someone uh, uh, an ebook directly. Um, you can't, you know, sort of buy uh, a you can't, e- wrap, you can't it wrap it up. So this is, a, it looks like an experimental program in just a couple of stores in Washington State. I guess no surprise since that's Amazon is headquartered mm-hmm. in Washington State, where you can buy um, title specific ebook cards. Um, and right now, the ones that look like you can buy The Martian, looks like you can get Girl on the Train. And not, no surprise, sort of the big sellers of the last couple of years. And you can buy them in the store and give them to an individual and they enter a code and they redeem it. Um, Interesting. Interesting. It is interesting. I don't know that I would ever do this. Uh, <laughs> it's just very, you know, it's one of those things where there clearly this is a trial balloon from Amazon mm-hmm. to see how it goes. Um, I don't, do you ever see this being a thing? I guess that's my question. Is this a thing that like someday we'll see in Barnes and Noble or somewhere else or Best for Buy. like, I specifically want to buy my friend this book. But or, yeah, they I don't only know that you go into Best so Buy. buy it this way. You'll go into Best Buy and there'll be a shelf of ebook specific uh, titles because yeah. of gift cards. It's kind of like you go into Walgreens and there's like, you can buy a gift card to, right, from Applebee's right. to Goodyear. Yeah, I just, I mean, no. Yeah, I don't is think the, so. I don't is think the this short answer. Thing, yeah. Like, give me the Applebee's gift card. Don't give me the gift card just for the chicken tenders basket. Ah, you know, like, I it's, see, yes. Like, uh, I think the to me as a consumer and a gift giver, the beauty of the gift card is I know that you are into this thing. I would like for you to be able to have whatever kind of thing you want. Um, so here's a gift card to go buy books or here's a gift card to go have a nice meal and order whichever appetizer sounds good to you. Um, I get the idea, like I get where this came from, that people have been like, oh, you know, I want to share this particular book with this person in my life, and this person likes ebooks, and the only way to gift them the particular ebook is to send an e, like to basically buy it on Amazon and send it to their Kindle email, and that's boring, mm-hmm. you know, like it's very anticlimactic. You can't put a bow on it, um, but I just don't want this like yeah i don't see it happening i guess i can't see that it'll be popular enough to continue you'd have to know the person you're buying for has the device or platform that you're giving because you can't just sort of give the martian and you can redeem it on barnes and noble or google play or ibooks or whatever Mm -hmm. and Um, these are kindle specific i don't know if we said that i I thought it was implied I think there's a an inverse correlation too between how much you read and how much you want to receive specific books as yeah, gifts. Right. Um, the more, like, I know that the more I read, the less interested I am in having anybody else gift me. And the less something. interested people in your life want to and, give you books. They're f- yeah, scared of it. I know this. Right. The the more sure. difficult it becomes. You know, like I don't want anybody to give me right. books unless I say this is a book that I want because the it, the chance that they will know what I've read is so unlikely. And so, like, I think for power readers, it would be really difficult. Maybe Amazon with this trial is banking on like, everybody has a smartphone and you can put the Kindle app on it for free. And so even if you don't know that the person has 
a Kindle that they're using or they're not actively using their Kindle app on some other device, you could you could try it. Here's Kindle. I think the gift card for Kindle Unlimited is a more interesting mm-hmm. concept. Um, give. I know you like to read. Here's a membership to a thing. Give it a shot for three months on me. Um, but the specific book thing, I just don't. I, I, I just don't. I, I don't guess care. if you have someone in your life that's mm-hmm. only an e-reader, and there are those people out there, and you want to mm-hmm. give them a book, but you, you really need a bigger selection. Like it would really have to be a more, for me, it'd be a more, it'd have to be a more robust uh Yeah, it it seems to me that they could go further with this. And maybe they will if they let you make custom gift cards on Amazon so that you could, yeah, you could log on and I could be like, I want to give Jeff. Well, you can, you can buy someone an ebook and send it to them. Like I've done this. So you can give them one directly, but you just don't have the the card thing. But so you're saying if I can print it out or like something like that. Yeah. Like they give, if they give you something that you could print out or like you can make the gift card and they'll mail it to you and then you can wrap it up and give them the thing. Um, People might try that more. I just, I, I yeah, I don't, don't see, see I don't see it. I don't see it. I mean, maybe if they do it in very limited supply for like big blockbuster titles or things that are out, like The Martian is an interesting example, things that are out as movies mm-hmm. and that are big in the culture um, that you could just, you know, pick it up as an impulse for like even for yourself at the grocery store or when you're, you know, giving a gift to someone. But I just, nah, I mean, interesting, but not. <laughs> I, the other, the other question is, will this be a thing? Because I don't actually think this is very interesting. But the other question that I think is maybe the most interesting one is why now? Mm. And I wonder if it has anything to do with the flattening to downward trend of ebooks. Like maybe Amazon is detecting some of that and they're trying to, you know, combat that in a way and doing something they never felt like they needed to do before. Because, you know, this has got to be a pain in the butt to print these out and you've got to guess which titles people want and you've got to put them somewhere. You know, mm-hmm. they don't have a, you know, they have their one Amazon retail store, but where else are they going to sell these? They're not going to sell, Barnes and Noble's not going to end up in a bookstore. Yeah. No, they're not going to carry these. So who's going to carry these? you buy an Amazon gift card at like any grocery yeah. store or Lowe's or right. Target. Right. And so I would guess that Amazon is then just like, replacing some of the generic Amazon gift cards that they send to those retailers right. with some of these specific ones. With like the ones. top five best-selling yeah. books, and basically. and seeing if people are yeah. picking them up. Um, it would be interesting to see it at the holidays. I could see that maybe working mm-hmm. better, but I just don't see it becoming a thing. It is weird that we're seeing this now yeah, so and we're not late in into November. the game of ebooks. You would have like, thought this was something that would be earlier yeah, in the like life cycle. In the, in the big picture of ebooks, it's weird. It, this is a weird time of year to do yeah, a new ebook definitely initiative. Definitely true. Yeah, like, that's why, a, actually, did you, why did this I not thought launch? About that. Either. Like on Black Friday, yeah. why were why weren't these in all the impulse aisles at every Target on the day after Thanksgiving? Hmm. Um. Let's go to Jeff mispronounces words. Oh, fun! Yeah, I this like this is, segment. And not just words, but place names. So this is a story <laughs> of a bookstore in Okay, uh, Apatzingang in Mexico. Um, I'm going to take a guess. I'm so sorry to to all of you who know um, how to say that. And actually, all of you who don't know, because I'm sure it was horrible. Uh, in Mexico, it's been one of it's one of these towns in Mexico that essentially is not governed by the rule of law. Um, a drug cartel and a, and a resistance against the cartel have been made it a, a very very difficult place to live. Assassinations, kidnapping, gun battles in the streets. Not the kind of place maybe you would expect to find a brand new bookstore, but um, the publishing house, uh, the Mexican publishing house and book retailer, Fondo de Cultura Economica, FCE for short, thank you for that, um, set up a shop this year as part of the of the government prime, pre, crime prevention strategy pushed by Mexico's um, President Nieto. Uh, very interesting. And basically the idea mm-hmm. is like 
culture can be arts and culture can be a place of peace and coming together. Um, it can be a safe space, especially for young people. Um, and you know, it's it's a small. We can do even if we can't solve the structural issues immediately. This is something we can do now, which I think is an interesting way of thinking about it. It's set in a renovated railway station and surrounded by squatters living in old rail coaches. Reading sessions for children and adults, dance classes, mariachi lessons. It's a bookstore that's also sort of a cultural center. Um, I think this is a fascinating move. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's kind of like it reminds me of um, the locus of attention that was that 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 gathered around the Ferguson Public Library. Mm-hmm. Um, then and some of the other places where we've seen libraries stay open to be a place where people can come when kind of the rest of the social fabric is pulling itself apart that mm-hmm. this is one place where community and cooperation you know gathers and sure, this and is it, another example of people thinking about books and arts as being one of those nexus yeah it's interesting they say here you know narco culture it's what's imposed on people here mm. it influences how they think their music the way they dress themselves um, and that's from Uriel Ramirez Hernandez who's a teacher and poet who leads a young writers group at the center and he, uh, he says but we're working hard to turn this culture around like I think it's a sort of a given in cultural narrative that if you don't want kids to turn to life on the streets or in this particular case to narco culture then you have to give them something else to pay attention to and it can be sports or it can be music or in this case it can be books and dance classes i don't think that it really matters which of those things it is um it's cool for us that this is books um i don't think that books are more magical in this use than or more effective maybe than any other kind of engaging program that provides an alternative set of choices or a way to see a different path through life mm-hmm. um, could be. It's also an opportune moment for me to make a sister act analogy about <laughs> keeping, <laughs> you know, keep the kids off the streets by giving them a choir yep. to sing in. But that's, that's the idea. Um, it's, this is my hero of the week. For yes, sure. It's for sure. very, uh, it makes me, I think it, this is just an, it's a great thing to see happening in the world. And then it's one of those stories that is both, Book lovers, we like to see people recognizing books as one of the ways to help kids see new opportunities and new ways of thinking about their lives. And, and I don't think anyone participating, even the greatest champions of this project, would say this is going to be the solution to all of the problems of the, the country in this particular region. Certainly. But it's something you can do now, and it's something you can do relatively inexpensively. It's a lot different. Like one of the a security consultants sort of poo pooing it says, you know. Really what we need is uh, better education. We need to address corruption and political dysfunction. Yes, sure. to all of those things. But you can open a bookstore in six months, whereas this, these other things are structural. They take a million years. You know, Notoriously, corruption is hard because if the government itself is fundamentally corrupt, it's hard to get anything done. Um, yeah, it's, these are not mutually exclusive yeah, ideas. Right, right. But it has a it has a different results vector, and it, it proceeds along a different timeline than some of the other things that are going to need to happen for this area to, you know, feel some relief from the difficulties they've had. Um, so that was, you know, a, I guess an uplifting story, but also an interesting story in terms of thinking about um, books and the arts as being central to reclaiming. Um, a community. Okay, let's do, you know, let's do, we did some good movie and book adaptation news. We got, I guess this is a big story. Um, Little House on the Prairie, we're going to get another version um, mm-hmm. coming next year. I guess, has there been a movie version of Little House on the Prairie? I guess it was just the TV show that was <laughs> the, the popular thing. Just the TV thing. show, I think. Yeah. Um, Paramount In Pictures 
is mm-hmm. developing it, giant um, house, written by Abby Morgan, who wrote The Iron Lady. That was, I think, the Margaret Thatcher biopic. Mm-hmm. Um, no cast yet has been announced. But still one of those books that people love. Um, I read this a million years ago. I read, I love these. I have to say, I remember really liking those that I could not tell you one plot point. That's uh, yeah. I had the same experience. I got the box set as a gift and read them all when I was probably, I think like eight or nine. Mm -hmm. Um, I also don't remember much except like it was always cold and they were always in the wagon. Yes. Um, but from I think we had a contributor maybe who reread them. Somebody revisited them in the last few years and was horrified by the um, presentation of Native Americans oh. in them. So I will be and the television show. I don't remember. I only saw a few episodes. It was not a part of my childhood. Um, so I'll be interested in how they plan to solve that problem of the source text. The, the representation of Native Americans is a complete and utter disaster. Um, yeah. Debbie Reese, who does a lot of work on representations mm-hmm. of, of American Indians in literature and especially children's book. Uh, she talked about it when she was a guest on Reading Live. She's done a lot. She oh, uses right, her teaching. Right. That, that, um, that sparked me. That might be where you remembered it from. It. Um, no, that's not something we want to reclaim and uh, keep going forward in the, liter- the, the, the future history of the Little House legacy for sure. Um, so anyways, that's something to look forward to. We're running out of time here. Jeez, where did all we the are, time we gotta go? We got to do Yeah, we got one more sponsor. sponsor. So Penguin Random House Audio is back. It is, it is the time of year where you're going to want to find a good chair. You're going to want to find a good blanket. You, you know, if you're so inclined, you might get out the, 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 uh, the spears of the, – the, the knitting spears. Is that what they call those the things? The knitting spears, yeah. yeah. That's, um, you get, for or, all I know, that's you get, totally you get out your yarn and you get out your spindle and cinder I – don't, I don't know the knitting terms. I, I want, <laughs> Rumpelstiltskin? Yeah, Rumpelstiltskin's there with you. Uh, you know, all the famous knitters. Um, anyway, but the, the larger point here, I'm being tongue-in-cheek because neither you or I are crafters. Um, but one thing that we have talked about here is, you know, audiobooks, kind of like what I mentioned with uh, Management um, by Peter Drucker a little while ago, you can fit more reading into your life with audiobooks. And if you do like to craft, audiobooks are such a natural fit um, because you can, you know, engage a different part of your, while your hands are at work, your brain can be at work as well. So they, they've got a new setup over at tryaudiobooks.com slash crafter. And they've got some suggestions of things you might like to read. They even have some free patterns and some excerpts that you might listen to while you're listening to those patterns. Kind of a fun idea of, of, mm-hmm. of marrying what you're um, working on with what you're listening to. Um, there's also a sound advice tool, a uh, nice pun there, to find mm-hmm. an audiobook that l- matches the length of your project. So I'm, I'm, I'm told that some of the knitting projects or cross-stitch or whatever – kind of when you get the pattern or the the instructions will tell you about how long it should take depending on your skill level. So if you're like, you know what, I'm going to, while I make this shawl, I'm going to listen to, uh, I don't know, The Hunger Games, a famous shawl, um, and see what's going on there. So you can go over there, get started to listening and to get crafting. Um, so, you know, it kind of gives you incentive to finish the project too. Like one thing that's funny about audiobooks is if you're out on a walk, you're sort of motivated to stay out a little bit longer. Uh, because you want to finish the chapter if you're at the gym. So if you're also having some trouble getting started on new crafting finish or powering through, sort of adding the extra incentive to like you get to listen while you finish it might be another way of doing it too. They say to do some suggestions. I'm not sure. I I don't really know what kinds of audiobooks would be best for crafting. It's not something that seems to me as brain dead as shopping at the grocery store for me. So I don't know that I do sort of um, complicated necessarily nonfiction or something that's real idea heavy, but I did just finish 
um, just it was over Christmas break. The Girl in the Spider's Web, the new, the fourth book in the Millennium series featuring Elizabeth Solander and Michael Bloomquist. Um, now Steve Larson, of course, is dead, but take, the mantle has been taken up by David Lagerkrans. And I thought it was a real return to form. I thought the original series sort of tapered off in enjoyment for me as as it went. Um, but it, it's it's. I thought this was a real return to form, and I think it sets up the series to be you know have a nice future history. Sort of toned down some of the the. I don't know the exactly what she got at IKEA and exactly what she's eating and exactly the How size many of the microwave har- pizzas. I mean, there, we did mention Billy's a couple of times, but it wasn't sort of a constant thing. Um, we didn't exactly know how many har- um, gigabytes, how big the gigabytes, uh, how many gigabytes on the hard drive she had or whatever. But we did still get some of the you know specific hardware and stuff. So I think he kept some of the touches and sort of toned it down and then ratcheted up some of the other plot points that I think one of the things we like, you know, there's conspiracy and mm-hmm. stuff about, you know, corruption and abuse. And, you know, we get some more intrigue and you get a very nice, it's not really a cliffhanger, but you get a nice what's going to happen next towards the end. Um, and so uh, mysteries have long been something that's great for a sort of a, a cold winter night. And these are thriller, political, techno thrillers, right in sort of a modern version of that. And I thought, you know, if you like the originals, I think you will like this. Um, I was pleasantly surprised, I have to say, as one of my comfort reading choices. I'm looking forward to the, the rest of them coming out. Um, yeah, all I've got is I know there are a bunch of mysteries with oh, like, yeah, knitting right. puns in the title. Yeah. So, it's, you know, hunt up some knitting pun title audiobooks for yourself mm-hmm. while you're knitting. Then you can just be meta. I would make a knitting, knitting pun, but I don't. I mean, there's stuff about pearls, maybe knit one pearl, too. I got I got I, even my <laughs> even my pun metaphor engine is uh, yeah, starting. We don't have enough fuel for the pun. engine. Yeah, let's see. Let's do one. Let's do one more story. I, you know, a fan. A, Someone I think we're both a fan of. I don't know if we've talked about the Jesmyn Ward. Oh, yes. Um, yeah, we have. Who wrote uh, Men We Reaped and won the Pulitzer Prize for Salvage the Bones. Just won the Strauss Living Prize um, from um, – uh, it's given by the Academy of Arts and Letters once every five years. So it's kind huh. of the – what's the Fields Medal in math that's given yeah. every mm-hmm. five years? It provides her $200,000 to devote – to vote two full years to writing in lieu of teaching at Tulane. So basically, you know, it's a stipend. Um, Men We Reaped was named one of the best books of 2013. Salvage the Bone won the – oh, I'm sorry, not the Pulitzer Prize, the National Book Award. I misspoke mm-hmm. there. Um, and I think Ward is one of those writers – she's a mid-list novelist, I would say, for sure – I would guess she hasn't sold enough books that she could quit teaching full time to devote to writing. That's just my sense of it. Mm-hmm. She's probably sold quite a few, but you know she's not um, not a Stephen King. But you don't have to go that far um, up the food chain to get to where you could could make a living off just the published book. So this was alleviate some of the teaching responsibility that she can turn her attention full time to writing and be more productive. And perhaps you know with a couple more books out or one more book, she can. Then if she decides to do it, devote herself full time to writing. In my opinion, as many words as Jasmine Ward can write, the better for all of us yeah, involved. Yeah, I hope this means that there is a new Jasmine Ward book in the offing very quickly. Yeah, I would be, I'm sure she's a wonderful teacher. I'm very sad individually um, for the students that will not have the pleasure of having her class. But I am, you know, this is sort of uh, utilitarianism. The greatest happiness for the greatest number of book lovers here mm-hmm. is let's get Ward yeah. some more titles and some more money and some more time to spend doing um, what she's so wonderful at. I'm, I, I'd say... It's probably I'd be as excited to see what her next book is from any writer I can think of right now. Yeah, she's I think she's an important voice and we're going to hear 
more from her. Yeah. I almost want her to write more memoir essay nonfiction than I do. I, I'm torn fiction. myself. I, you know, generally you know, would come up on the fiction side, but Men We Reaped was so amazing that I, it, maybe that was what we need yeah, here. Yeah, it would. And I've been thinking, you know, we've talked about it, but it's worth saying again that if you read Ta-Nehisi Coates's yeah. uh, Between the World and Me last year, and you're thinking about race in America, but you have not yet read Men We Reaped um, by Jesmyn Ward, that's an excellent companion read mm-hmm. um, from a different perspective about the same kinds of experiences. It's just, it's a really astonishingly good book. Um, and for being so young and so early in I, her career. I know, career she's got such a, so, it's so like, exciting. She is young and she's, she's got so a- so bonkers talented. A huge <laughs> career ahead of her. Um, and this is a way of turbocharging that. I know yeah. some writers like to stay, you know, in the classroom to some degree, but there's a difference between teaching your your one writing seminar a year versus doing a full load, you know, two, two or three, mm-hmm. three or whatever. You know, I don't know what the- She's an associate professor of English, so I'm assuming that requires a 2-2 two, two or 3-3. Three, three, uh, I'm sorry, I'm using jargon. Two <laughs> classes a semester or three classes a semester kind of teaching load, which is a kind of grind. Um, and I can only imagine that it would detract from your creative abilities having done a 3-3 three, three load of, of, at times myself and a 2-2 two, two load multiple times. In my experience, there's not a lot of juice left in the tank, um, not to mm-hmm. compare myself with Jesmyn Ward, but to compare my, you know, knowing what that life is like. Um, to try to be engaged and active and do the grading and bureaucracy and the creative work of teaching and then sort of finding or crafting or carving out with a scalpel um, the time and energy to do, you know, what she's already so much better at than than, than most. Um, Big congratulations So we're excited to, to that. So maybe, I don't know, it's been, what, two years since Ben We Reaped? So, oh, I feel like it's maybe? Maybe, yeah, maybe not even that a long. A few? Yeah, so maybe another year or two and then maybe... Um, Again, I don't want to fall into that trap of more, more, more. But this is and now you've <laughs> got two hundred k now for more, so um, yeah. accelerates the timeline. So I, that's also, I guess, a hearty recommendation on the the two books from Jesmyn Ward that are out there already. Yes. All right, I guess that's our show. That is interesting. Our show. Interesting long show today. As always, you can find show notes to this and other back episodes of the Book Riot Podcast at bookriot.com slash podcast. You can follow us on Twitter. I'm at the Jeff O'Neill, O-N-E-A-L. She's at Rebecca Shinsky, uh, S-C-H-I-N-S-K-Y. Um, if you've got uh, you know feedback for us, uh, podcast at bookriot.com. If you're sitting around some Saturday night with nothing better to do or you're listening to the podcast and you think of it, it would be so great if you take a moment to review us on iTunes. Not us, the show, which is sort of reviewing us, but the show directly and all the nice things you might say about us or not so nice things or criticism or helps other people find the show. An honest, re- uh, honest review is very helpful over there as the magic of the algorithm um, the more people review and rate, the more um, attention Apple will give to people looking for book-related podcasts. That's sort of the general theory we have right now. Um, also, if you've got other kinds of feedback for us that maybe wouldn't fit into review, things you'd like us to do differently, things you want more of, comments on a particular show. You know, what I found especially helpful is like we don't have all the book experiences, and there's a lot of you out there that work in different parts of the book world or don't, which really helps us think about um, what the stories we're talking about and what we might want to cover. So do give us a, a shout at podcast at bookriot.com if you've got some feedback for us um, on the show in general or any particular story or topic we tend to talk about. Um, and with that, we're off. Have a good one. Have a good one.